The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly Editor Rich Eisen, and as always, I am joined by my partner in crime here, uh, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? Pretty good. How are you, Rich? I cannot ask for anything better than what I already have. <laughs> and positive. we're we're joined today. We're really thrilled to be joined today uh, by someone that I think the education community certainly knows in our capital region here, uh, Marshall Tuck, who is the new CEO of EdVoice. Uh, also has uh, been a couple times a candidate for uh, state school superintendent. So very few people know as much about what's going on in education today, I would say, as Marshall. So, hey, we're really thrilled to have you, have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Rich. I'm also, I also have a son who's 11 years old who's been in public schools for seven years now. So I've not only worked in the sector for 20 plus years, but I've also been a, a parent experience as well. So I uh, think I got a fair amount of experience and really excited for this conversation. Oh, I'm, I'm the experienced part. I'm very yeah. sure of that part. We're very sure of. Well, so let's get started there. As I noted, you're the new CEO at EdVoice. Uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, maybe taking that position and, and what your thoughts are, uh, where we're at with education right now and what your goals maybe, uh, are for EdVoice, uh, in this new job of yours. Yeah, I appreciate it, Rich. So, you know, as we were talking beforehand, I've worked in public education for over 20 years, uh, spent the first over half of my career working, leading different school systems in Los Angeles, uh, school systems focused on how do we improve achievement for the lowest performing schools. So I started, my lenses always starts with classroom, principal, school, you know, school district, school system. And then uh, after leading one a network called Green Dub Public Schools, which uh, opened a number of public charter schools in Los Angeles and leaving that and running district public schools in a collaboration with the former mayor of Los Angeles and uh, with the school district where we took over and turned around the lowest performing schools in Los Angeles. It became clear to me that policies in Sacramento, how much money do we spend on public education, whether or not we're going to give early education for free to kids in the state, what our teachers can teach and what instructional materials can be used, how we train our teachers, how much time kids have to learn. All of these issues that had a big impact on our ability to run quality public schools, they come from Sacramento. And ultimately, that's why I ran for state superintendent of public instruction when I did. And that's also why I recently joined EdVoice, because EdVoice is a nonprofit organization focused on how do we reshape public education in California so it works much better for low-income kids. And, mm-hmm. and that reshaping of public education has to start with the policy environment. And how do we help our governor and our legislature and our state board of education to make sure that we have policies that really work for low-income children? Because, um, you know, our, our state is really – we have two Californias right now. We have one California that has the best jobs in the world that has about to be the fourth largest economy uh, that is tons of opportunity for a lot of people – but unfortunately, the other California's most low-income children don't get to access that opportunity. And, and that's what our organization is focused on, is how do we help uh, work with policymakers in Sacramento to have a policy environment around funding, around curriculum, around interventions and support, around mental health for our young people, so that children in poverty, children from low-income communities actually can graduate uh, high school, become adults where they can go have real success and have choices, you know, have choices that... A lot of people have that, that, that a lot of our kids just don't have when they become adults. 
Are there specific policy uh, priorities that you have for this year, uh, particular bills or uh, anything like that that you're already working on? Yeah, so so I always kind of like to remind people, education, we got to think about we have 10 years of priorities, you know, and, and we got to increase funding for public schools. We got to make sure we have early education starting at age two for low-income families is publicly funded. We need to make sure we're focused on early literacy so our young people know how to read by third and fourth grade. We have to dramatically increase the number of young people and career changes that are going into teaching. So I think we've got to increase teacher pay and we've got to actually strengthen teacher professional development. That's a lot, Rich. So obviously you can't get all that done Mm -hmm. in any one cycle. I think our state has made some nice progress recently with adding TK for all. So all four-year-olds can go and get early education. Also, the governor's introduced this cycle, uh, what's called an equity multiplier, an additional $300 million for the highest poverty schools in our state. We're big supporters of that policy and hope, and we'll be working to, you know, hopefully that gets passed. And then there's a a policy that we are co-sponsoring with uh, that Senator Portentino just introduced around uh, dyslexia screening. So the the focus there is how do we make sure that when children are in kindergarten, first and second grade, that we're screening them for um, early literacy and, and screening them to see are they at risk of being dyslexic? Because we know with dyslexia, if you identify early, there are interventions available today that can help children be quite successful uh, with dyslexia. But if we don't know if they have it, uh, then we don't give them the interventions. And um, the last decade, we've seen huge advances in neuroscience and the understanding of what is going on in kids' brains and, and, and much more focus there. And, and we have a much better ability. There are great screeners out there today that help you identify if a child in kindergarten, in first grade, is at serious risk of dyslexia. Uh, 40 states in the country right now require screening for risk of dyslexia. California does not. And so we are strong supporters of getting that passed so that every child is gets screened at an early age for their literacy levels, which will then identify, are they at risk of dyslexia? And then the young people, and 10% of kids or people in general have dyslexia or some form of it, um, we can provide the interventions to make their, they can get on track reading by grade level. We know that if you're reading a grade level in third and fourth grade, your chances of success are far greater than not. So that's can a that's a bill that we're focused interrupt on. Interrupt a little bit. Yeah. What, what percentage of California kids do read at that level, like at third so, fourth grade? So if you look in, in third grade right now, the first year we test, and that, so the first year we actually test is third grade. Uh, and that is, again, something that we, we need to be screening kids kindergarten, first, second, just so we can identify where our kids at so we can help them. Um, for low-income kids, 71% of low-income kids in the third grade in California are below grade level. It's 58% across all kids, but 71% of low kids. So think about that. So only 29% of low-income kids who are third graders are at grade level. And and if you're not at grade level in third grade, your chance of being successful, fifth grade, seventh grade, 11th grade, it's it's just much less. And so I think as a state, this starts with, I think the governor's taking a good step forward. It starts with early education. You know, we've got to make sure that we're starting educating our kids at age two and age three. I, I tell folks, um, you know, my son, I, I said, I got an 11 year old. When my son was two, my wife and I, we were lucky enough to have disposable income and we paid for him to have preschool for a couple hours a day. And then when he was, when he was age three, he had a lot more preschool and, and my peer group, um, folks who do have resources, everybody who's got disposable income that, that I know of, they, all their kids actually got preschool, but most low income kids don't. And, and so if you, if you think about that, by kindergarten, if, if some kids are starting where they've already had access to letters and some early numeracy and other kids aren't, it's not a surprise that by third grade, a lot of kids aren't there on reading. So we've, yeah. got, we've got a long, long way to go. And I think that heavy investment 
in early literacy, both pre-K, kindergarten, first, second grade is essential for our young people. And it's the right thing to do for our state success. And, and we think that this idea of getting, let's, let's at least get screeners in there so we can see which kids are struggling because of dyslexia and let's, let's get them the sports they need really early is, and, a, is a step and forward. And this is also a, a bipartisan issue of, uh, from my understanding in past, it, like early education and everything. That's, yeah. I was going to ask that question though, because if 40 states are doing it and we're not, there has to have been some opposition. We can't possibly be that far behind the curve, are we? Has there, is there, is there somebody that opposes us? Doing this kind of screening? I think there's always a question that folks, sometimes when somebody will hear screening, they think, oh, is this testing and is it, is it over testing children? Uh, which is, I, I think the wrong frame. I think the frame is, how do you get information about a child so you can best provide the supports for that child? And, and so I think there's just a, we, we're a little bit behind on kind of making sure that the sector understands for young people, we actually can do both grade appropriate and culturally relevant. So we have a lot of English learners in the state. So we have, we have to make sure our screeners make a lot of sense for English learners, which the newer ones do. Actually, the state's been working on um, at UCSF, actually a screener that for the last two years, it really is kind of both based in neuroscience, based in the science of reading, but also based in something that makes sense for kids coming from other countries. And so I think we've actually made real progress on the screener side of it. So Yeah, and I think, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there are something like a hundred different languages spoken in. Yeah, I mean, our, our, our California, I mean, the thing about California, it's we have, when adjusted for cost of living, we have the highest poverty and we have, your two point, Tim, tons of kids coming from other countries, other languages. I think that's a huge strength, but yeah. it also means we have to invest more in our system and we have to have uh, curriculum that, that makes sense linguistically and culturally for our young people. But But to your point, Rich, this is something we should do because we we know that if you provide a screener, it can help our kids be identified earlier, and then we can give them the support they need. And and, and you'll find like, in the school sites, a lot of schools do it already. So this isn't something that's you – know, you'll find schools and school districts doing that, but but not all schools and not all school districts are doing it. And I think one thing that California has work to do on is we're such a big state that oftentimes you may see something happening like, great in a Sacramento school or something happening great in a – Oakland school or, or great in a, you know, in, in a rural school, but it's not spreading across all schools. So, so we don't always do a great job of finding out what's working. We have pockets of stuff that's working for all kids everywhere in the state, but we're not always great at saying, let's do it across all schools, all classrooms. And I think in this case, for, for dyslexic kids, we need to do it. Well, isn't that always the challenge, though, between local control, state control? You, you started out with that, talking about too much policy coming from Sacramento. How do you find that balance between giving locals everything they need to implement good policy, but also still having the ability to choose that policy for what they think is best for their local community. Yeah. So, so I think this is, Rich, I think this is one of the fundamental tensions that we have a responsibility to kids to figure out. There are some things that we know works in education. And I think when we know it works because it's been proven in schools, it's been proven through research, we have a responsibility to do it. There's other things that we know work that, that can be customized or adjusted, you know, and, and so I think this is the balance. So when we think about a screener, for, for example, the law that the senator is putting forward is saying every district has to use a screener for kids on uh, identification of risk of dyslexia. But there's room to use a couple of different types of screeners. So the state board's job is to figure out which ones are scientifically backed that actually are research based. But it doesn't have to be just one. You can do there's two, three, four different kinds. And then you can leave that decision up to a local district or a local school decide which one to utilize, what makes sense for their staff, for their situation. But I think what we shouldn't be allowing us in, you can make a choice locally on whether or not you're going to identify if a child is dyslexia. If we know that we have screeners that work 
And we know that if we identify earlier, every ounce of research says kids have so much greater chance of success and opportunity if we identified earlier, then that's where I think that that centralized decision-making for that kind of a decision needs to be there. But I think that's a good example of the balance where you, you, you're given room at what type of tool to use, but you're saying you have to use a tool and it's at least got to be backed by research and proven practices. And, and it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a balance. It's a tough one education, but it, you can't have all local control and you also don't want to have all centralized. It, it's on the stuff we know works. Let's make sure we're doing it across schools and the stuff that we, we're still working on where you want to have a lot more customization based on, lo- based on local decisions. Let's give some flexibility for that. Now, we know uh, we've been in really good budget years for the last few years. Uh, this year is an exception. We know uh, we have budget deficit for the first time in a few years. And of course, that, you know, haircuts happen across the board in that case. Um, where are we in terms of education and funding uh, in this year? And, and you know, because I, I can hear it already, you know, well, who's going to pay for that? That's yeah. the number one question when you when you talk about anything new is, well, who's going to pay for that? So let's talk about that. Who's yeah. going to pay for that? And, yeah. and how does that fit into this year's uh, budgeting? So so the, the good news, so obviously, unfortunately for California, we've got the estimate was a $25 billion budget deficit. Um, I think for kids, the good news is that as of right now, uh, there are not proposals to decrease funding for public education. And, and that, that includes our, our TK, which is for four-year-olds, the expansion for, for transitional kindergarten, uh, as well as for the K-12 system. So that's something that, that we are uh, strongly supportive of. And we hope that, that that will maintain in this budget cycle, and we believe it will. So, so in spite of the large $25 billion budget deficit, the, the current focus is not to have uh, material cuts for public education. In fact, they're still able, the current plan is to have the full COLA of 8%. Uh, the cost of living adjustment in there. So while there won't be uh, substantial new funding, uh, there is still some in terms of cost of living adjustment and there, uh, adjustment, and there aren't significant cuts. So I, 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 again, I applaud our state saying we're protecting who I think we should protect the most, which is our young people and particularly our low-income kids. Um, but I also think that given that there isn't a lot of new spending this year, um, there are certain initiatives like the dyslexia screener where the good news is that one of the tools that's been developed at UCSF is free. It's a free tool. So there actually isn't a substantial cost increase for schools. We have to do a little bit of work on the professional development side to make sure that principals and teachers know the tool and utilize it. But there actually is a free tool available that can be used starting the 2023, 20, 24 school year. So that's that, or sorry, the 24 school years. So that, that's exciting. And then I think, as you mentioned, on the, for the rest of the schools, the last two years we've passed a number of big programs. We expanded transitional kindergarten for all four years, uh, four-year-olds to get it over the next several years. We substantially increased funding for after-school and summer programs, which is a really important piece of policy. This is we being the state, certainly not not Ed Voice, the state. Right. Uh, you know, the state has uh, invested they two hundred fifty million last year. They're, they're estimating another two fifty this year for literacy specialists to help with reading. Uh, Oh, several billion dollars in community schools. So, so we've actually made a lot of in community schools. Basically, is around dollars to help bring in um, additional resources, both for families and for kids, not just education, but healthcare and, and food insecurity, etc. So, so those have been big programs. So, I think using this year as a year to say, okay, let's let's make sure schools can get that in place and have this be a year about like we're putting this money to work. What's working well? How do we share best practices? You know, I talked to. Even though I don't run schools anymore, I still talk to a lot of superintendents and principals and teachers, and they're they're kind of saying, "Hey, we don't need more new programs. Let, let's 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 let us do this work well." And I think the job of the state in the next year or two is to figure out we've put billions and billions of dollars into new programs. What's working the best, particularly for low income kids, 
And then how do we share those practices? So we obviously in the future years have to make sure we don't go backwards on funding. We are finally as a state, the state was so far behind for so long on funding nationally. I was shocked on how bad it was. It, well, well it, it was amazing. So when I, when I was leaving back in 2008, 2009, time when I was running the schools, some of the schools in Los Angeles, we were 48th in the country in funding when you adjust for cost of living. And I mean, uh, 50 years ago, we were in, I think, the top three, right? The, the, in, in the 70s, we were always top five. Yeah. Um, now, the good news is we, we, we still aren't where we need to be because we have, a, as we said earlier, we have, we have a higher poverty population, we have a higher cost of living. But we actually, as a state, have finally, we're above the national average on absolute dollars and we're just below on adjusted for cost of living. I believe we have the top 10 all the time, so we got a long way to go, but we at least aren't in the, we are the worst in the country. We're now about average and, and, and California should be at the top. I think Phil Angelides used to call that the Mississippification of our of our school system here. Yeah, I remember him talking about that. We were, so, we were just ahead of like at the time, like it was, there was we were like just ahead of Mississippi or something like that in terms yeah. of funding. And and can I think of our state as as kind of the leader of innovation opportunity? Again, think of two Californians. We have this. We have part of our state that has built some of the best companies in the world that have incredible jobs that has unbelievable wealth, and then another part of our state where. We've got 71% of low-income kids that aren't at grade level in reading. And that, 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 there should not be two Californians. I mean, yeah. we, we have to find a way to, to, to make sure everybody has opportunity. And, and you can't have opportunity. And I think of as a child, when you become an adult, you must have the foundational skills, academic and social emotional to be able to go and access post-secondary college or, or go access a job and have some choices. If, if we're not delivering that for our young people, then we're just doing them a massive disservice, and, and, and it's it's a problem for our state. And it's, in my opinion, it's it's also a, it's an immoral problem. It, it, it's an issue. Well, one problem that certainly crosses all of the economic bound uh, uh, strata, et cetera, was COVID. We we know COVID has had. In fact, I don't think we know yet how the impact of COVID is going to play out over the next decade. Um, most, you know, everybody's back, right? There's still. Uh, we still don't, like I said, we, since we don't know exactly what that impact is going to be, where are we at in terms of trying to assess how to go forward in this COVID impacted environment? What is, what, what impact is COVID going to have this year and maybe over the next couple of years as we try to bring kids back into and maybe get them back up to speed, especially when, when we know that they probably lost yeah. a lot in the last couple of years? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I, I have an 11 year old. And so, so he, um, you know, COVID, COVID hit and, and it was March 12th of, of 2020, his school shut down. And basically for that, those first couple months, it was tough, right? We were all so concerned and panicked. Schools were shut down and he, there was no education really going on for those first three months. We tried to make up for it at home. And then, and then for the 2020, 21, 21 school year, the vast majority of that school year was online. And, and my, my son, you know, obviously different school districts had different, we're in Los Angeles. So, so our schools were closed until May of 2021 and different districts had different experiences. But to your point, Rich, the reality is, is a lot of time was lost, uh, for learning. And, and, and I think a lot of teachers and principals work really hard and superintendents to get, get kids online. I, I, you know, I'd be on there, our, my son's online and, and, and he's got, he's not a great online kid in general. And, and, and the teacher's trying to figure it out and they've never done online teaching, but they're trying and people are working hard. But in spite of great effort, I mean, the reality is a lot of learning was lost. And then you put on top of that, 
the mental health side of it, you know, the socialization side of it. Like, you, you know, young people are going to school. They're, 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 they're building a lot of their social emotional skills by working with their peers and having support. And then they had a lot of crisis where you had, you know, real food insecurity right after COVID hit when, when the economy tanked. And then even when the public dollars came back, you had a lot of folks who had loss of life in their family at a much higher level, particularly in low income neighborhoods where there was much greater. So we not only had academic, uh, major loss, loss learning, but also real mental health issues and, and kind of less social emotional development. I think as you, as you said, there's no one year recovery from that. Um, because if, you know, if students were had, you know, lost a couple months of school outright and then were online maybe half the time for, for, for another part of a year or all of a year, depending on the district, that's just time that, that it needs to get back over multiple years. You, you just can't make it up with an hour here, an hour there. So I think what's been good is there, um, are more focused efforts today around how do we have tutoring after school for kids to make up academically? I know a lot of school districts invested a lot in summer school for kids. They can make it up over summer. Um, there's been more focus on more mental health professionals to help our young people, uh, make up for COVID. But, but it's going to take time. Like you, you, like one summer doesn't make up for, you know, 10 years of, of learning loss. And, and is there data? On this, I mean, I know there will yeah. be, but is there data yet well, that, that, yeah, that maybe gives you some basis point to work off of? Well, you can see. So for California, our our proficiency rates uh, in English dropped four. So if you look at the eighteen nineteen year, which was the last year before COVID that we had data, our English learning arts dropped by four percentage points in terms of kids at grade level, and math by six percentage points. So 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 that you you know that we we that we had a we just about ten percent drop in terms of you know in English and and higher in math. And, and that, that has high variability, as you can imagine. I mean, this is, you know, my, my house, we were able to, you know, my wife was able to decrease some hours so she could do more learning for our son at home. And we had, we had that flexibility financially. And a lot of the kids that I used to work with in, in, in South LA and Los Angeles, they didn't have that flexibility. So, so you see wide variability in terms of learning loss, but as a state, uh, you saw us go down four points in terms of proficiency rates in English and, and six in math. And, and that, that's basically just to give you a sense of what that looks like is, it took us about four years before the pandemic to grow four points and six points. So, so it, it's, it's real. But what that means on the ground is it means, you know, a lot of kids who are maybe sophomores, juniors and seniors in high school, they don't have that much time to make it up for. So are we providing additional supports, uh, whether it be in our community colleges or, or like some schools think about it, like almost a fifth year for a senior to kind of make up that time? I think summer school has to be a real part of our work for an extended period of time. Tutoring has to be a real part of our work for an extended period of time. And this is where, to your point, the funding will be a challenge because the last two years, we've had a lot of money from both the federal government and we had the surplus at the state level. And districts were using those dollars for tutoring, for summer school, for additional support. Um, we've got to find a way to keep that up. And that, that, that's where I think the real push on are, are the dollars going to be there. I think this coming budget year, because there's still some leftover stimulus dollars for 23-24, it's not as big of an issue. 2425, which is not that far away. Uh, we, we, we can't just turn off the spigot on, on intervention and, and helping kids make up. If we do that, we will do a massive disservice to our kids. We're going to have to have, I think, for at least three, four, five years, additional academic support, which is tutoring after school, summer, uh, additional social emotional support. And if we don't provide that, why would our kids get back to where they would have been? It's not, it, it's just not possible, but we can do it. I think we can get it done. We've, I think there's been some progress and, um, we just can't, because we're out of the toughest point of COVID, we can't forget that what our kids experience doesn't kind of doesn't go down the same way COVID may have gone down. It, it, it's a, I think it's at least a five-year time to get out of it if, if we stick with it. Well, you know, Governor Newsom has been very open about his 
struggles with dyslexia growing up. And, and so I wonder in this particular case, budget challenges notwithstanding, if, you know, you might have a really strong ally there that will help foster some of this legislation to, to the end of the road. I mean, what yeah. do you think? Well, I certainly hope on, on, on the, um, the screener for dyslexia specifically, that's something that, that very hopeful the governor got behind because it's, it's fast as you, as you talk to, you know, parents in particular who have kids who are dyslexic or you talk to adults who were dyslexic, the consistent story of, I wish I had known earlier. Like, I, 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 I wish, I wish they told me my son earlier is just a consistent story. And it's not that people aren't trying to do it. It's just, it's just we haven't, we haven't built it into our schools. So, so, uh, we're, we're certainly hopeful, but we, we gotta, as you said earlier, and I mentioned, like, we're one of 10 states that haven't done it. So, so we, we've, it means it's not, hopefully now we'll get there and, and get it done, but it hasn't gotten done in the past, but hopefully the governor gets there. And then I think as it relates to other, uh, supports around pandemic relief and learning recovery, it's something that I think he's been strong on to date. And, um, we're going to have to, I, I believe that that leadership will continue and I hope it will. And, and as you mentioned, Rich, the hard part's going to be as, as the dollars, if, if the economy doesn't, you know, rebound next year, and this year there's enough kind of federal dollars in state where, where it's not going to be as problematic. We can keep a lot of the, I think that a lot of the districts can keep the interventions going, but, but the following year we're going to have to, as a state, step up for our kids of greatest need. Because not surprisingly, if, if we don't step up, wealthier families will go get it for their kids anyway. They can, they can, they'll pay for the tutors and they'll pay for the summer school. It, it's our kids of greatest need, the ones that need us the most that will really suffer if, if, if we don't lead on this. You know, um, we noted earlier that you had ran for the state uh, school superintendent position a couple times. Um, anytime you, you read anything about that position, there's always the notice that, you know, uh, the school superintendent doesn't really set policy, isn't really responsible for policy. That's the legislature, it's locals, it's what have you. So I'm curious, what what is the motivation? What's the, what's the interest still in that job? Cause there are, there always is interest in having that position. Is it just the bully pulpit? Is there an opportunity to have maybe greater influence inside the building? I mean, what, what, what's the appeal for having that position? Yeah. I think of public education. We have to have a great policy environment in Sacramento and you have to also be implementing good work in school districts and in schools. And, and I think what's fascinating about the state superintendent job is, that really is, is the expert or leader in education. So in terms of influence in the legislature, I mean, as you two know, the legislature only has so many staff members and they have tons of issues. They're focusing on education and the environment and homelessness and housing. And, and so the ability, it's not really a bully pulpit, I think, to, to provide policy expertise to the legislature and to a governor's team as they're thinking about which policies can truly move the needle the most for the kids who need it the most is something that I think that uh, the superintendent position is extremely well positioned to do. And then on the implementation side, you know, we, we've got <clears throat> dozens of county office of education and we have a thousand school districts. And how do we help all those groups? And you, you have, a, you know, this, the California Department of Education has 2000 plus employees. I mean, it is it's 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 not it's as much a technical you know, service delivery and service support entity as it is a policy making. And that's where I think that, that people underestimate, to your point, folks who think about the role that maybe haven't really dug in the details around um, both for the Department, State Department of Education as well as for the county offices. How do you help those groups provide 
support to school districts and share best practices at what's like, what is working for early literacy? You know, where there are, there are examples in the state right now where folks are doing a really good job getting more and more kids up to speed in reading by third and fourth grade. What practices are they utilizing? How do we share those with other districts and other counties? There are places in the state right now where they're really doing creative stuff on redesigned high schools so that, you know, juniors and seniors are getting more access to career technical education and, and, and actual real career experiences but it's happening in pockets. And so that's where the state superintendent, the California Department of Education, partnering with counties should be sharing those practices with other districts. So that's why I've always felt that that role can be very, very influential. Now, I think if you look nationally, if you ask me, hey, do I think that role should be elected or, or appointed? You know, I'd probably put it in the, the bucket of appointed by a governor versus elected. The majority of states in the country, it is not an elected position. Well, let me, I want to ask you about that. That's a, that's a, I'm really glad you brought that up because I know you had some interest in uh, a similar position in Louisiana. Um, but I'm curious, what, what was the difference there that was appealing? And as you started to say, what are some of the differences around the country? Where, where could maybe California look at outside of our borders and say, you know, that might actually work better here. Yeah. So, so for me, my passion is, is how do we as a state or in some cases a large city really come together for our kids living in poverty? Like that, that is my, my North Star. Like I, I am focused on how do we help young people from low income communities have much more opportunity. And so when I didn't win for state superintendent, I looked into a couple of cities where there are larger cities with school districts where I thought, hey, maybe it's a point where the city or in some cases the state is going to truly rally around low-income kids and can I be a part of that? So that 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 is uh, my passion. I mean, ultimately, I'm a California kid and 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 it just made a lot of sense. We're, we're, we're focused and locked in here on California. Um, but I think there is a lot to learn from other states and, and they have stuff to learn from us. And, and I think, unfortunately, in, in public education, we don't we don't learn enough from each other. So if you look at um, other states, Massachusetts right now, so when you look nationally, there is one test that is taken across all states for both fourth graders and eighth graders. It's, there's only one. So, but you can look at this data and try to get a sense of which states are, are having more or less progress. And you can actually disaggregate the data by non-low income and low income. And so what, what's fascinating, you look at California, California, you hear a lot about, oh, our public education system it's got to get improved. It's not working that well. When you look at the data nationally, our public education system for non-low-income students actually works quite well. Like we, we, we rank fifth in eighth grade reading in the country and fifth in eighth grade math in the country for our non-low-income kids. So, so we're top 10%. Math compared to the rest of the states in the country, we're 41st. So, so you have these huge gaps. You look at a state like Massachusetts. Massachusetts, it's top 10 for both non-low-income and for low income. And so that's telling you that they're, they're like, they found a way to do more, you know, for low income kids than this state is. Now, as we said earlier, our state's more complex. We have higher rates of poverty, we have more languages. So it's, 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 it's a, there, there's, there's more complications here. That being said, there's things you can look into in other states saying, hey, there's other states that actually are doing more for kids in terms of more pre K and more early learning. Massachusetts has invested a ton in teacher development and teacher training. I mean, the, the, you know, schools, are complicated, but they're pretty simple. You got to get teachers in front of kids that believe in kids and we have to help support those teachers. And so uh, we need to invest a lot more in getting more people to come into the teaching profession, which looks like how do we pay teachers more? How do we have more focus on professional development in terms of our teacher credentialing programs? And these are things that there are lessons in other states that we can learn from in terms of recruiting teachers, in terms of class size. And, and, and so, so I think that we've got to always be looking at where are the best practices within our state 
as well as outside of our state. And then getting back to your question, that hard tension of kind of centralized policy, local control, let's at least make sure everybody knows what works. Because usually if people know what works, they're going to use it. And then in some cases, if they know it works, but they're not using it, then maybe that's where, where policy comes into play. But I always kind of always remind people, folks want to wake up and have a good day. Or you want to go to your job and be successful at your job. And so if we as a state do a better job of helping teachers and principals and superintendents understand what is working really well for English learners or what's working really well for special education kids or what's working really well for low-income kids, they're more like they're most likely gonna actually use that, but but we don't always get that information to them. And that that's that's we can learn from other classrooms, other states, other schools, and and um but we got a long way to go. I mean, it, it, we have to be crystal clear in our state. The, the, you know, the great state of California, the wealthiest state and the wealthiest nation in the history of humankind still has a public education system that does not work well for the majority of kids from low income families. And that's something that that EdVoice, our organization, is 100 percent focused on. How do we reshape that arc of opportunity in our state so that everybody can experience the California dream and not just some people? Well, Marshall Tuck, thank you so much for coming by the office here and, and telling us about your new gig. Yeah, well, I, first, I appreciate you all focusing on public education because step one on, on reshaping that arc of opportunity for young people is we got to get more folks in the state prioritizing public education and particularly prioritizing public education for kids from low-income communities. So I really appreciate you all prioritizing this for the podcast. Absolutely. Oh. All right. It was yeah. fun. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks to our listeners. Absolutely. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks again to Marshall Tuck. That was a really interesting conversation uh, that we had today. I really appreciated him coming by. I know Tim does too. Um, but that must mean only one thing. It is time for us to go to our favorite section, who had the worst week in California politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. You know, this is Dan Marine's favorite part of the show, too. Well, yeah, I'm sure all, all of us reporters like to figure out who have, who's having the worst time of it all. I think this week, uh, you know, there's always multiple options, but it's, you know, I think we need to look a little bit to the West because it seems like maybe the entire city of Oakland is having a bad week. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, I think this is a unique. We've never actually awarded the worst week to a city, but I think Oakland has earned it because all of the bad stories for worst week all were in Oakland this week. First one was the uh, firing of the police chief, LaRon Armstrong, uh, for his apparent mishandling of some misconduct uh, investigations. The mayor uh, let him go. I, I see that there have been protests from some of the community members. There have also been people who think this is a good idea. Uh, but that's that's never a good thing for your city when your, your police chief gets unceremoniously uh, kicked to the curb. Yeah, and and... You know, it'd be one thing if there was, you know, something really rock solid to point to and there was a lot of unanimity with it, but there's not. There's clearly a lot of controversy over this, um, you know, in, in the 24 hours afterward, you know, she essentially uh, doubled down on it, uh, seems to have stricken a, a note of, of real strong uh, maybe defiance to those who who didn't agree with this, which, you know, certainly her right. And if she, if she felt strongly enough to do it, then certainly you, you know, she should have the conviction to stick with it. That's all fine and dandy, but it certainly uh, would have been easier if everybody wanted this to happen. And clearly um, that wasn't the case. So, uh, you know, as one way to kick off your term in office is to, to go in there and, and start taking names and you know what else. And so here we are, right? 
Well, and another way to kick off your term in office is to have your system hacked, which has happened to Oakland this week. And I believe it was a ransomware attack. And a lot of city services are offline right now as we're recording this interview here. Uh, they can't do things. And I don't know when that's going to happen. So that's pretty awful. That's something you certainly never want to happen to your city or uh, your administrative uh, area. Well, and, you know, that's been a problem all over the country. I mean, Baltimore, I think, is the poster child for that now for um, it was either last year or the year before, you know, they they got hit really, really hard. And, uh, you know, you would think that every city out there is doing every single thing they can to prevent these kinds of attacks, but they keep happening. And, you know, a city the size of Oakland, uh, you know, they've definitely got a lot to lose and in a case like this. So hopefully, hopefully it's a short-term thing and then um, steps can be taken to prevent it from happening again. Uh, I guess time will tell. Um, you know, the, the guys doing this are pretty good at it too. So, you know, we'll, we'll cross our fingers that everything is going to get smoothed out there quickly enough. Um, sticking in the city of Oakland though, of course, uh, this is not a political thing, though it really is in a lot of ways. Uh, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred this week said that uh, the Oakland Athletics and their owner, John Fisher, are now focusing on infrastructure in the city of Las Vegas, uh, giving, I suppose, just one more bit of credence to the possibility slash likelihood that the A's may be leaving Oakland at some point and relocating to Sin City. I don't know if that's going to happen, but given um, how slowly things, I guess, are moving on getting the A's their new stadium down at Howard Terminal uh, over at Jack London. Um, I mean, it is a political story, though, because we've seen uh, bills in the legislature over uh, environmental impact reports, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this as because of these stadiums and how much they cost these days, uh, virtually every new stadium that goes up these days is you know, uh, going to cost some public money, even when there's a lot of money being spent on the private end of it, whether it's the infrastructure around that. And now the big thing, of course, is uh, real estate development as part of a of a bigger development project for cities. So, you know, for a stadium. So really, really uh, beyond just a sports thing. And it just looks like Oakland may, uh, may be getting to the end of the line with their possibilities. I guess we'll see. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, uh, I'm not a sports guy, never have been, but you can almost not find a political figure who is not, or at least pretending to be. I mean, the only person I can really think of, uh, I don't think Bernie Sanders ever talked sports. Everybody else, they are sport, you know, they they follow the sports stuff. They make sports analogies. Uh, it is, oh, yeah. it's dyed in the wool. If you're going to be into politics, you either better be a sports fan or you better be really good at faking it. Because well, I mean, that's we, what your constituents care about. Think, think how many elected officials have come from the sporting world over the years. I mean, it's, it's, it goes on and on and on. Right. And, and, you know, there's, there's probably good reason for that. The, you know, built in name recognition and all of the stuff that we talk about when you, when you're going to go run for office, the ability to raise money. And now some have failed miserably, let's be honest there too, but others, you know, we've seen quite a few that have been quite successful over the years. Hey, our governor was a baseball player at Santa Clara, right? And our, really? 
Yeah. I didn't yeah. even know. I mean, I obviously Sacramento's mayor uh, for a long time, not now, but uh, for two terms was a professional basketball player. Sure. Kevin Johnson, was NBA all-star and on and on. Right. But yes, there is. We always have this fascination with sports. And of course, we all know former Senate pro Tem, current Sacramento mayor, Daryl Steinberg, a rabid Giants fan, a rabid Giants fan. Uh, it goes on and on. There's no what question. You know, uh, it's funny. I read uh, Pure and Loathing Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson. And you would think that Hunter S. Thompson and Richard Nixon would have nothing in common. One one would expect, uh, given the, the the makeup of those two individuals, yet when Nixon found out that Thompson was a fanatical football follower. They arranged a trip, a car trip. You know, they were driving between uh, between cities for some sort of an event, and they they got Hunter S. Thompson on in the car with Nixon so that they could talk football for three. Like Nixon was very excited about this, and he goes into this in the book, and it's surreal. And it's one of those things where you're thinking, did he make this up? But he did not make really did not make this up and you know you picture like hunter s thompson probably high as a kite on mescaline uh talking to richard nixon about the football of 1972 well you know nixon once very famously drew up a play that he tried to convince uh george allen who was the coach of the washington team i i will not use the name that they were called at that time currently the commanders um that he tried to convince george allen to, to actually put into a game plan. So yeah, Nixon was a rabid, rabid football fan for sure. Um, just circling it back to open, you know, I, 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 I don't blame them for really wanting to move a little slowly here. We all know the deal that was worked out for the Raiders to come back to Oakland in 1995 has not worked out well for the city. You know, the Raiders have been gone now for two or three years. They're going to be paying on all of the cost of the renovations to the Oakland Coliseum, I think for at least four or five more years. So many, many years after the team is gone. So they, they, I don't blame them for wanting, you know, to really protect taxpayers. That's not a bad thing at all. But, you know, whether, whether the powers that be in Major League Baseball are willing to wait and let that play out or whether they're going to take that easy money in Las Vegas, time will tell, right, Tim? Yeah, well, in Oakland could get the uh, worst week again when they move. So. Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm, I, I love, I love Oakland. I'm really, I've been going, I, I, I met, I'm a fan too. I've been going to A's games since I was a kid. So I, I, um, it pains my heart, but you know, it's, it might be a bad, it's been a bad week for Oakland and let's, we'll, we'll just cross our fingers that things get better there really quickly. Well, on that note. Okay, Rich. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yep. Take care, Tim. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.